looking at Psalm 137. <laughs> I can't do that. It'll, it'll... We've both got shaky hands, so this is why we need a microphone. So, oh, dear me. It's just like... Uh, Psalm 137, page 620. Here we go. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if, it, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. On the day Jerusalem fell, tear it down, they said. Tear it down. To its foundations. Oops. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. On to a slightly more cheerier reading. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is thirsty, feed him. If he is... Sorry. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why don't we pray? Father, as we turn to this 
pretty intense topic this morning. We ask, Father, that your spirit would be active in our hearts and in our minds. Some of us know all too vividly the effects of anger. Father, comfort us. Comfort us as we deal with this raw topic. We pray that your word would speak to us, that your spirit would take these words and teach us and change us, that we would not only reflect the the character of your son more fully, but Father, we would have confidence uh, to live each day for you. We pray this in his most precious name. Amen. Anger. Once upon a time in recent history, I went across to Melbourne for a emotional intelligence leadership training thing, uh, and we were taught to recognise all the signs of anger. Um, do you really need to be taught the signs of anger? You pretty much know, don't you? You can feel it. I can remember working in an office with someone uh, who was distinctly unhappy with me. This person was sitting uh, out of my direct line of sight more than five metres away from where I was sitting, but I could feel that anger. You know what it's like, don't you? You know what anger can do. For some of us this morning, as I prayed, we have actually been on uh, the rough end of anger. You know what it's like. You know just how destructive it can be. For some of us, it's us that gets angry and we know we know what anger can drive us to why do we get angry anger comes when a line is crossed anger comes into our hearts and our minds when someone crosses over the line what's what's the line Well, the line could be anything. Sometimes it's just my will, what I want to watch on TV, the kind of home I want to come home to after a day at work, the kind of friendship, the kind of marriage that I want to have. And if my will is crossed, I get angry. And sometimes the most effective things we can do at that point is actually just recognise, repent and move on. Often our anger is self-seeking and totally selfish. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes the line that is crossed is the line of justice. When we or others are victims of the anger, of the injustice, of the violence of others... And anger is natural. Anger is is not wrong. It's an entirely appropriate thing. But sometimes that anger bears bitter fruit. We get this tit for tat. They did something wrong. Yes, you get angry and then you do something to them. Then they do something to you. Then you do something to them and it builds. How do we... How do we short-circuit that? It's a question that not only dominates our personal relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our life as family, but it's a question that dominates international politics. So much of the conflict 
around our world has its roots in historic wrongs and righteous anger. They did this, their parents did this, their grandparents did this, and the cycle goes on and on and on. How do we as Christians, what does the Bible give us to actually help us deal with this? Is there something that being a follower of Jesus uh, makes a difference in this area? How can we see anger not produce the bitter fruit of revenge and violence, but good fruit? Is, Is that even possible? Well, Psalm 137 is here to help us. You might be surprised to hear that after having heard it read for us. Um, Can I say, this week, spending time once again in Psalm 137, uh, it's a fantastic psalm. So if you're having that, I can't believe they read this at church moment, um, just get over it for a little while. Let me try and explain it. You can come and talk to me afterwards if you still believe that at the end. Four points. I've worked really hard. I have peas for you this morning. Uh, Okay. Four points. The pain of exile, the pledge to remember the plea for justice, and the power of love. Let's kick off. The pain of exile. Now, Psalm 137 was written after probably the lowest point of Old Testament biblical history. 587 saw Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon come in and just grind Jerusalem and Judah to a pulp. Historians tell us that every single fortified city in the region of Judah was levelled. The population, through death, disease, or being killed, disease, and deportation, was reduced by 90%. The temple smashed. Why did this happen? Well, on one level, it was a political thing, because Israel had been conquered by Babylon some 10 years earlier. Uh, and then they rebelled. And so if someone does that in the ancient world, what you do is you go teach them an object lesson. And you need to make sure that no one else gets the idea that they want to rebel as well. And so you make them pay in spades. And Nebuchadnezzar stomped on Judah and Jerusalem really, really hard. Let me read to you from 2 Chronicles and the part that records this. Verse 15. This gives us a slightly different perspective as well. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, that's Israel's ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers, the prophets, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him until his successors in the kingdom of Persia 
came to power. It's a pretty brutal time. Who wants to live in 587 BC in Judah? Not me. But this psalm comes out of that time. It comes out of, not of Judah, but of Babylon. The opening words, by the rivers of Babylon. And get Boney M out of your head right now, please. I know you all started to, to sing along. I know you did. Uh, but um, to put this psalm to a disco beat just, just doesn't really work, does it? Written from, the, written from the rivers of Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. It's not a Sunday picnic. More than likely, these are slaves digging the canal system that irrigated that plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. We read verses 1 to 3. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Sing a song of joy to a people whose home has been destroyed, whose nation has been obliterated, whose family, if they are living, are slaves with them in exile in Babylon. Sing us a song of joy. Seemed to be a bit of an ancient uh, habit Here's a, a picture taken from the, uh, the palace of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, just a little bit before this. But you see at the back here, I'll point on this side, there's the Assyrian and there's some slaves with their harps singing. The very picture that the psalmist records for us is recorded to us for us by archaeology. Sing us one of those songs of Zion, you know, like Psalm 2 where the king of David's line rules the nation with a rod of oil. And yes, sing us, sing us that one, slave. What about Psalm 87 about how much your God loves your city? Sing us that song. Can you imagine the pain? To put it into a completely trivial example, but some of you will feel this. 2007, grand final. Imagine the cats saying to you, Port supporters, yeah, sing us your victory song. 24, 19, 163, 6, 8, 44. Sing us the victory song. You know, there's some of you that still have nightmares about that. You'll get over it. But you know what? You know what? The deep grief of what happened in 587 was so powerful that we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 that is dated more than a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. We read these words of Nehemiah. His brother has just come back from Jerusalem. Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital of Persia, and we read this. His brother said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
the pain that this man feels. He wasn't even alive when this happened. He wasn't even alive in 587. And he grieves. This is no grand final loss. This is an affront. An affront to everything he believes. Well, what about us? None of us here uh, probably feel a strong connection to the ancient city of Jerusalem in 587. We probably don't have the reaction of Nehemiah and his contemporaries. But what about us? Because we're no strangers to evil, are we? Turn on your television, read your newspapers. I've seen people watching the news, hearing stories on the radio in tears because of what they've seen. And that's something that doesn't touch them personally. I don't know how you are, but yesterday I was at the CMS conference and I heard of a man who went back to Pakistan and recommitted his life to Christ and two days later was murdered by his boss. Why? Because he'd recommitted his heart to Christ. I don't know how that makes you feel. I read about what's happening in Sudan, what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Afghanistan. I read about the child exploitation, the slavery that is happening around the world. I know many of us personally have been touched by pain, by evil, by injustice. Maybe we're not in Babylon grieving Jerusalem. But we know what this is like. In Babylon they said this. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? They, they can't sing. They won't sing. Why? Well, not because they've given up. The rest of the psalm shows us that. But because they will not allow God and his promises and his purposes to be mocked. They will not. And so they move on. Now I just want to step back a little bit. And I want to, uh, maybe you're here this morning, you're visiting with us, maybe you're a regular at Trinity, Trinity Bay, uh, but uh, you're still working this kind of Christian stuff out. Uh, I've been talking about justice and right and wrong, but can I say they are things that make sense as we see things from Scripture. A lot of people in our world have a view that our physical world, our natural world, is all that there is, you know? And the God of this world is not the Lord of heaven and earth, but Darwin, okay? And the impersonal hand of survival of the fittest. Yes, this is how this world works. The strong live, the weak get trampled. The other day I flicked on the TV... And um, there was a doco and it had lions eating cheetah cubs. And I was like, you know, it's really sad. Uh, some of my kids were sort of looking away at that point and stuff. But as the commentator, as the narrator actually explained, it's entirely normal. You'd expect this to happen. The lion wants more prey, get rid of the competition. That's how the natural world works. So why don't we look 
at Babylon destroying Jerusalem? Why don't we look at what's happening in the world's conflicts and just say, actually, this is how the world works. I don't have any reason to actually get upset. And actually, it's not a bad thing anyway, because survival of the fittest, isn't it? It's all about the stronger getting strong that, that, that's, and, and the weak passing aside. That's actually good for us. That's how the world is meant to work. So why do none of us feel that it's okay? Why do none of us feel it's okay? When we hear about trafficking of children, if you went along to CMS, you'd hear Maggie Cruz tell stories of how parents are selling their children into slavery in Africa, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. Why do we say that's wrong? From a naturalistic perspective, well, you can say it's wrong because I say it's wrong, but that's just your opinion. But from a biblical perspective, we can say it's wrong because there is a God. There is a God who has determined what is right, what is wrong, what is just, what is unjust, and we have a God that judges. So we'll come back to that, but think about that one, perhaps, if that's where you're at. The pain. How are we to respond? Well, the pledge to remember. Let me read to you. Uh, Psalm 137 continues. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? He says in verse 5, if I forget you, Jerusalem. Uh, I seem to have jumped over. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. It's a pledge. It's a promise that the psalmist makes that he will remember. Now, what he's pledging to remember is not the horror of 587. It's not a pledge to rehash the pain of what happened again and again and again. It's not a pledge to feed the fires of resentment and bitterness in an ongoing way. It's not a promise to fester, to plan and plot revenge. What is he promising to remember? What's he saying as he calls himself, as he promises that he will remember Jerusalem? He's promising that he will remember God's good purposes and promises. In the face of so much temptation to give it up, to walk away from his faith, The psalmist says, no, I will not give up. I will believe in the promises that our God has made that are tied in the Old Testament to the king in the line of David, to the city, Zion, Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel. He promises, he pledges that he will not give up God's good promises. He doesn't deny his pain. He's not some kind of stoic, you know, bring it on, you destroyed Jerusalem. There's 10% of us left, you could keep going. No, he doesn't deny his pain. He's not, he's not like the Buddhists who would see material attachment just as a distraction from the true spiritual nature of the world. We can see he feels the pain, can't we? 
He feels the pain, but he will not focus on the pain. He commits himself to trust God and his promises in spite of everything. And he turns to him with a plea for justice. He cries out to God and he says these words from verse 7. He says, remember. Now, remember in this context is a legal term. He's coming before a judge and he is presenting a case. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites, the cousins of Israel, what they did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. You can read about what Edom did in Obadiah, the little book, little Old Testament prophet. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundation. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? It's pretty in your face. Happy is the one who kills your children the way that you killed our children. Happy is the one who is the agent of God's judgment on you the way you were on us. The end of Psalm 137, if you're an Anglican and you know about things called lectionaries, anyone know what a lectionary is? Like it's a systematic way of reading through the Bible. Um, The old Anglican lectionaries used to drop the last three verses off Psalm 137. They just can't deal with it. When you heard it read, when you've heard me read it again this morning, how do you feel about it? This is God's word. Are we happy about this? I think we have difficulty dealing with anger. We tend to deny it. We tend to minimise it, explain it away. We tend to distract ourselves from the things that are causing it. Or we tend to, if we're a bit more sensitive perhaps, we tend to despair because we hear Jesus' words about loving and forgiving and we kind of feel that, I can't do that. I can't do that. And so anger is a really uncomfortable topic for us. So when we hear it so vividly displayed in God's word, we have trouble with it. But read it carefully. Because this is a plea for justice. It's a legal cry. This is Israel standing before the judge of all and saying, it's in your hands. It's in your hands. This is the victim impact statement. Coming before the judge and asking for justice. What they did to us, you do to them. That's justice. As horrific as that sounds, that's justice. It's not a cry for revenge. It's not a rallying point for rebellion. No action was taken, as far as we're aware, after Psalm 137, to kill the children of Babylon. It is a prayer processed between God and the psalmist, between the nation of Israel, between the Christian church and their God, given to us so that we understand how it is that we deal 
We deal with the right anger that comes when we face the injustice of this world. They go before God and they say, you are the only one who is qualified to do this. Let me illustrate. For those of you who've got kids, you probably get this. You know, you walk into the room, there's two of them fighting. Stop it! What's happened here? She did this, he did this. How do you, you can't even get to the bottom of that, can you? You know, what is justice? Am I qualified to give justice there? I don't understand the first thing about what's actually happened there. God is the only one. God is the only one who is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful. He is the one that the psalmist acknowledges is qualified to judge. Jumping back to our little stepping aside, some of us really don't like judgment. We like a God of love, but we're not really happy with the idea that our God judges and might actually send people to hell, will actually send people to hell. But I can suggest this morning that you need, you want a God of judgment. Because God stands behind that sense that you have, as formed or unformed it is, when you face the evil of this world that says, that is not right. A naturalist has no reason. A secular view of this world has nothing other than their opinion. I think about world history. Tiananmen Square. You remember Tiananmen Square? Students protesting. Chinese government sending the tanks. I can remember talking to a Chinese person. They said it makes perfect sense. You don't privilege the individual over the stability of the nation. So what happened there was right. For us in Australia, we go, I can't believe you did that. It's wrong. Well, why is my cultural opinion better than their cultural opinion? Well, it's not. But we have a God who stands behind and over all cultures, who validates that anger that you feel at injustice but also allows you, allows you not to lash out and continue the cycle. Because like the psalmist, you can come to him and say, I know that you both can and will judge. And I leave this in your hands. You are better qualified than I am to bring justice to bear. Only when we believe in a God who can judge and will judge can we actually let go of that cycle of revenge and violence. We need judgment. But it's not the final word. The psalm teaches us to hold on to God's good promises, to bring our anger and entrust it to God and leave it in his hands. But the New Testament doesn't leave it there, does it? It takes it up a notch. The power of love. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
We're not just to stand back and say, fine, I'm not going to take revenge. I'm just going to leave you alone and let God sort you out. Well, Romans tells us to overcome evil with good. The Lord Jesus in five, Matthew 5, 44 says, I tell you, love your enemies. Not ignore them and leave them to their own devices, but love them. Pray for those who persecute you. And not just the ones who say unkind things to you. Not just the ones who disadvantage you socially. But the ones who murder your just recommitted Christian husband in the name of Allah. The one who stomps all over your city and destroys your nation. We are to love. We are to pray. We're not to stand back, we're to step forward. How do we do that? Where do we get that kind of power? Because that kind of power does not lie within us. We need to see that each of us have crossed that line. Sure, they may, we may not have done what they have done to us. We may not have done what we see on the TV, but each of us have crossed a line, crossed a line breaking God's law, defacing the beauty of his holiness. To phrase it, if you'll excuse me, in Psalm 137 ways, our sin means that we took the beloved child of God and dashed him to the rocks. That we stood with the crowd and cried, crucify, we have no king but Caesar. Peter stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts and he said, you killed the author of life. I killed the author of life. My sin killed the author of life. My sin nailed Jesus to the cross. My sin made him die in my, in my place. We need to recognise that just as they have crossed the line, so we have crossed the line. And we have crossed the line the line of a holy, righteous God. And when we see that, when we hear those words on our lips calling for the Lord Jesus to be crucified, denying that we ever knew him, but then hear on his lips those words, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. When we see the extent of our guilt, but the wonder and the beauty of the salvation that is ours. When we see that we deserve to be objects of wrath and anger and judgment, but we are, we are loved. We are cherished. We've been adopted into his family. The one that we sent to the cross calls us brother, sister, His father is our father. When we see, when we see the beauty 
of the forgiveness that is ours. As Christ dies in our place, bearing the cost of our sin. As the Holy Spirit breaks our hearts. Breaks our hearts, takes that gospel deep within us. It is there. It is there at the cross of the Lord Jesus. It is there at Calvary that we find everything. It is in prayerful dependence upon the Spirit that we can come and say, Father, I leave justice in your hands. Help me with my anger. Help me to love as you have loved me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your love for us is staggering. That you would go to the cross. That we might be forgiven for a godless, violent, angry, hate-filled people. Hating you and hating one another. But dear Lord, your grace, your grace was sufficient. Your love overflowed. And we ask now that you, by your spirit, would be at work in us. Soften our hearts. Help us to see both just how guilty we are before you, but then how our guilt is washed clean. Just how deserving of judgment, but how you took it. You took it in our place. How we deserve to be cast out. But you welcome us in with open arms through the forgiveness, the victory won over sin and death by you, by the Father at the cross. Lord, we think about anger. We think about the things that we struggle with. Lord, help us not just to explain them away. Help us not just to excuse them. Help us to deal with them as the psalmist taught us to. To bring them before you, to ask for you to judge. And Lord, then give us the grace and the strength that we might leave them in your hands. And through the Lord Jesus' precious name, we pray this. Amen.